It is impossible to describe the feeling that took possession of me as months rolled by and I saw the active employment of a prosperous people move smoothly and quietly along in the absence of masculine intelligence and wisdom, cut off from all inquiry by my ignorance of their language. The singular absence of the male sex began to prey upon my imagination as a mystery. The more so, after visiting a town at some distance, composed exclusively of schools and colleges for the use of the country. Here I saw hundreds of children, and all of them were girls. Is it to be wondered at that? The first inquiry I made was, where are the men? I had put the question to Juana one day, but she professed never to have heard of such beings. It silenced me for a time. Perhaps it is some extinct animal, she added naively. We have so many new things to study and investigate that we pay but little attention to ancient history. I bided my time and put the query in another form. Where is your other parent? She regarded me with innocent surprise. You talk strangely. I have but one parent. How could I have any more? I saw that there was some mystery I could not unravel at present, and fearing to involve myself in some trouble, refrained from further questioning on the subject. This opening is taken from Mizora, a prophecy, first serialized in 1880 and published as a book in 1889. It frames our debate about literary representations of single-sex societies, a topic that could hardly be timed better, I think. I'm Stephanie Schaefer, and this is Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to reading women in North America. In the last weeks, the U.S. has been shaken by an unprecedented leakage from the Supreme Court. Justice Alito has written the court's majority opinion in the pending case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which addresses the constitutionality of a Mississippi state law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The final vote is expected in June or July 2022, a few weeks from now. But if the leaked opinion carries... This would effectively overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which ruled that the Constitution protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion. Overturning Roe v. Wade would not, of course, reduce abortions, but rather expose pregnant women to health risks if they choose to terminate a pregnancy, forcing them to give birth. Commentators have started talking about a post-Roe v. Wade era, where access to contraception as well as uh, LGBTQ plus rights might come under similar attacks by a conservative Supreme Court, all issues representing the will of an evangelical and conservative, mostly white, U.S. populace. So, as we're watching a few conservative individuals writing laws that affect women's rights to, to making decisions over their own bodies, I think it is high time to address a literary take on this, an imagined world without men. Here with me today is Professor Judith Rauscher from the University of Köln, who is kind of an expert on this. 
First of all, she's the author of Eco-Poetic Placemaking, Nature and Mobility in Contemporary American Poetry, a monograph that is currently under review. But she's also the co-editor of Gender Forum, where she's preparing a special issue on gender violence and the state in contemporary speculative fiction. Her research interests include gender and queer studies, as well as feminist criticism and speculative fiction of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And in this capacity, I'm super happy to have her as an expert on speculative fiction and gender. Welcome, Judith. Hi, Stephanie. I'm really, really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. When we when we started talking about this podcast episode, we didn't know what would happen in May 2022. So it's on the one hand grueling and on the other hand, uh, I think a great example for how literature can become a laboratory for thinking about how the world might be differently. And uh, the text that we kind of agreed on anchoring this discussion in is uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Herland, a novel from 1915, which imagines a world without men that is discovered by three male travelers. So uh, we'll talk about this text. There are a, a host of other texts that we also read for this episode. So I'm really excited about a firework of ideas <laughs> and uh, states imagined without binary uh, gender system and power structures. But maybe let's let's start talking Herland a little bit and uh, take it from there. Why did you choose this? And yes, what's going on? Right. So why did I choose this? I've been interested in single-sex societies for quite a while. And the first one I ever came across in classes was Gilman's Herland, because it's arguably the most famous of its kind. And then um, as I was taking other courses on women's literature, I came across a few other ones. Um, the Female Man, for example, a text from the 80s. And then I was starting to wonder whether there were other ones. And I started digging and there are a surprise, there, there are many. Yeah, there, there are a lot. And so uh, I chose Gilman because she is the most famous and a lot of people know her work. And she also arguably represents one of the main strands or... <laughs> Uh, of this type of narratives, which is the feminist utopia. Yes, exactly. And in the in the opening quote, which was not from Herland, but from another text that we're going to discuss, you you kind of pinned this also down. Um, what do we do with this absence of men? Why are there no men? And don't those women that live in those society societies have two parents? And then the answer is, it's strikingly, why I have one parent, all's good. I don't need a second one. So the, the, the key question that's always in debate in these texts is how do they reproduce? What are the futurities of these utopian communities when they don't have men? How do they procreate? Let's get this out of the way and uh, answer it for Herland <laughs> and also maybe for the other texts. Uh, and then we can talk about, in a, about all the other things that uh, come with having single sex societies. Right. I didn't want to be super mysterious about this, although, as you've said from this quote uh, from Mazura, 
in these texts, it's also often constructed as a mystery. So the people who come in from the outside are wondering, and in, in this quote that I've read, it's, it's Vera, it's the narrator who comes in from the outside, and she's wondering, where are all the men? So yeah, so it's constructed as a mystery. But uh, yeah, let's get this out of the way. Both in Mizora and also in her land, women reproduce without men. In Mizora, they reproduce scientifically with sort of some chemical process that isn't explained further. In Herland, they uh, reproduce via parthenogenesis, so out of themselves. They essentially, yeah, they reproduce from within themselves. Yeah. And so biologically, there's no need for a male counterpart. And while that's really one of the intriguing questions about the text, there's so much more that goes beyond this that is negotiated. What I find interesting is and maybe we can start from there also, why are there so many texts around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century that come out a time that's also at the time of the fight for suffrage, which finally comes in 1920, uh, which is written into law. It's the time of the woman question, so to speak. So that will be my t one mm -hmm. of my tentative answers to this. But why do people like to imagine a feminist utopia at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think you have given part of the answer. I think it has to do with uh, the first wave of feminism that is going on at the time, but also with the frustrations that come with that, because women don't gain the vote until, you know, 1920. And so they've been fighting up to that at that point, they've been fighting that fight for the vote, but also for other rights for quite a while. And another reason, I guess, is the general upsurge. Uh, of a utopian literature at the time. And scholars often re relate that to other sort of struggles um, compounding at the time. There is labor struggles, there's racial ten tension following reconstruction, but there's also progress, social progress, industrialization. Um, the society is changing and um, in a rapid way where people begin to imagine if, if society is changing so quickly now, What is America going to be like in 10 years? What is it going to be like in 100 years, right? And people have written these kind of utopian speculative texts before uh, or wrote, wrote them before. But yeah, there's this upsurge, generally speaking, of utopian literature at the time as well as feminist mm. writing. And then when these mm. two come together, I think the feminist utopia is a logical yeah. choice. And then there's another period where that happens, and that's um, during second wave feminism. So during the 70s and 80s, when we get, again, a, a big number of these feminist utopias or single-sex societies. Yeah. So, so the utopian genre here is one that articulates social criticism of the status quo in the present so that one present would be the 1880s the second one would be which is i find so which i find so intriguing would be the 1960s and 70s and says uh, mm -hmm. things as they are are not okay <laughs> to say the least and uh, um, a better world would be possible if or a better world might be possible if we could do away with a few reality um, effects here and turn into a different place. So the, the utopian on the one hand is the beautiful and on the other hand, it's also in these texts, the no place. In her land, we have three uh, male travelers who are discoverers. So like pioneers, kind of. So her land is a place that is mm -hmm. located behind the mountains. And maybe we can quickly talk about what kind of 
place, how they get there, what they come across. And then as this is the latest, the 1915 publication of the text that we're looking at, look at the other places and how the travelers discover them or how they get there. Right, absolutely, of course. Yeah, so um, in Gilman's text, these three travelers, as you said, they're explorers and they go to South America and they've heard rumors about this strange land of women in the mountains in a valley cut off civilization. And so they go um, and explore and they use, you know, technology like uh, they fly there, um, which is how they come across this 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 valley or this land, um, which has been separated from the rest of the world for centuries, if not longer. And they they land and they find that it's a land of women. So I guess um, what is sort of inscribed in that, of course, is again, is this imagination of exploration, of discovery, as, if you, as you have suggested, there's this idea of the lost race, which is also prominent at the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century in, in speculative, early speculative fiction, right? This idea that, that you discover a land and a people that has not been in contact with uh, the world and that works differently from, from your own society. So yeah, again, Again, as with the, with the with the long tradition of utopian literature, there's always this comparison. And the men who who enter her land in that case, they also, of course, compare. They compare the land that they see, which is beautiful, and um, everything looks well designed. Everything is clean. The women are beautiful. They are sort of Amazonian in stature, and they are that's also mentioned explicitly in Gilman's text, they're of Aryan stock, which is, yes, of course, so it's also, there's something a, there's that's also worth outspoken racial, racial tendency there to preserve Absolutely. whiteness also. Yeah. Right. So this is in South America, but of course the women that they find are Euro, European um, mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it maybe it's important to note that the three discoverers that you can you can put them in the character scale more or less. <laughs> so the uh, first person narrator is the one who kind of does best uh, with dealing with this society. He marries uh, one of the women and uh, kind of gets the best of both worlds. So the question is, what do the discoverers do with this discovery? Do they integrate? Do they break mm-hmm. away from it? Uh, do right. they leave? And then the other two, Jeff uh, is a tender soul. He's too romantic. And what's the other guy's name? Oh, I always keep blanking. Um, Terry? Terry? Yes. Terry. He's a rogue. And Terry or... is a rogue. He's a ladies' man, but not in a good way. No. Uh, so he really uh, is out to conquer. And he fails miserably. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, the th- mm-hmm. so when the three explorers arrive, they're captured by the women of Herland, but then they eventually meet meet women. Each of them uh, gets one woman, and they're they're sort of types, as you've just said, right? Um, the narrator, he's the ethnographer. He he um, he has a scientific mind. He describes mm-hmm. the society. He he produces the record that we readers then get presented with, and yes, he 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 marries. Uh, and eventually also takes his wife um, to the outside world to show her what life is like 
outside of her land. And Jeff, he stays behind. He and his wife, they they um, make a baby. So this is why he stays behind. And then there's Jeff, who he's the rogue. Um, he's the ladies' man, not in a good way. Um, he tries to rape the woman that he starts a relationship with um, because she refuses to engage with him sexually. Um, so he, Or he tries to rape her. And this is also why the men then are being expelled or why Terry is expelled and Van then follows along as well. And it's, it's important that all three of them have to start relationships. <laughs> so uh, um, the... As you said, I mean, Van Dyck, the narrator, is, is, is an ethnographer, so he has a more or less scholarly perspective on things. But the romance plot has to happen. There's a That's how the, 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 the narrative, narrative works from Van Dyck's perspective. Because right. the women are so beautiful, of course, they're there to be conquered. And every man does his conquering in, in his own kind of way. Absolutely. But, um When I first read this, this was so disappointing. Yes. I was really put up off by that because, and that's, that was the, I read this in my studies and I was like, oh, come on, can we have a society, a utopia where the discoverers are not conquerors and uh, mm -hmm. we end up in, uh, you know, heteronormative relationships and marriage is operated. So mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about Perkins Gilman's feminist politics here. <laughs> um, I mean, right. you know. She herself was an orator. She was independent. She made her, she lived off her own money and her pen. I don't know, to be devil's advocate. Why do you have, why do we need marriages? What do we need them for? Judith? <laughs> right. And I mean, think? I guess in a way that, you know, it's a very good question because the women do very well, right? They have to, they have developed this mythical ability to uh, reproduce. They're doing fine. Also sort of within that sort of, within the logic um, that that um, Gilman, uh, Gilman places them under where not only are they doing fine, they're doing very well because they've established the system where only the best of them reproduce. And mm -hmm. so they've sort of, they've perfected their society. This is actually mm. um, why they are so beautiful and why they are so mm. athletic and, and all these sort of, and, and so smart and, and um, everything. So they're doing very well. But then as it turns out, once they see men, um, at least some of them, the ones that we were sort of told more about, they realized that they've been missing something, right? Oh. And it's interesting, they've been missing something, but then again, and, and this will goes uh, to what you're saying, right? Um, do we need those heteronormative um, relationships? I mean, they're heteros so do, there's these heterosexual relationships that are being introduced, but they're not necessarily or strictly heteronormative in the context of the time. Mm. Because the woman that is paired with Terry the rogue She also is passionate like him. This is why the two come together in the first place, right? She's strong-willed and she's passionate, but that's also why she refuses him and why he has to try to use violence to to get her into bed, which he fails at also because she's mm. protected by, by one of her sisters. And the partner of, of Van, the narrator, She's uh, smart and she, you know, she is of the scientific mind like he is, right? And she also refuses to, 
to sleep with him, um, at least initially, uh, because, you know, uh, she also, she wants to travel the world with him eventually, right? And and, and uh, doesn't want to give up her career and so forth. Um, so it's not strictly heteronormative in, in this way. The, the one sort of very traditionally heteronormative relationship that we then get is between Jeff and his the beloved who is mm-hmm. as romantic and traditional mm-hmm. as he is. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so Gilman gives us these different options but the 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 frame still remains strictly heterosexual. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean of course with these three pairs we also have a scope right a variation of how relationships can go and at the end of it, I guess I'm happy here with your answer <laughs> so it is feminist no, in that it projects that it projects uh, women's desires and uh, generally I think um, a, a a critique of domesticity because yes I mean Jeff he's I mean he's so soft mm-hmm. he really is also you know the kind of the laughing stock so, so masculinity is formed and shaped by by the feminine ideals and uh, he kind of manages to integrate and stay there because he's malleable and the other two kind of preserve their own personality and make compromises and of course I mean it's there's poetic justice in the fact that you know the the narrator has the most successful relationship so to speak um, right no but I do share your project I do share your frustration Right. No, yeah. I get it because you know it's not it's not as queer as as one would maybe hope yes. or imagine. Um, yeah. That comes much much later, where that option is something that these authors bring up, and I mean it is still frust- it is frustrating because there was queerer literatures out there, right, at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sexology was talking about non-straight, non-heterosexual desire, and and. Um, but that doesn't really come into mm. uh, into this text, and in that way, to maybe also go back to that initial sort of question, to go back to Perkins's feminism, it is in certain ways conservative, but then also for its time, it was still, you know for its time it was still radical in other ways. Mm. Yeah, it's that the typical white feminist, politically organized feminist approach to say. We demand equality. We don't want to overthrow the system. We don't want to, you know, do everything, uh, do away with the world as we know it. So, mm-hmm. Or only overthrow the system in certain ways, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, Gilman was imagining that uh, if women were freed from from childcare in the nu- within this sort of nuclear family, because, you know, in her land, children are taken care of in like kindergarten type school types places they're not necessarily mm-hmm. with their mothers mothers can pursue their careers if they so wish um, and also not everybody's a mother so um, other women step in right so she imagines women freed from these kind of uh, restraints mm-hmm. and is radical in that way so she does imagine a radically different world for women in that respect but not in in other yeah. ways that we could maybe think of nowadays yeah and of course i mean we have to mention the other texts that she wrote that is so iconic um, and that negotiates motherhood, namely the yellow wallpaper, mm-hmm. a text that is uh, a basically a post about a postpartum depression uh, where um, a young mother is kept from um, doing anything other than laying lying around and staring at the wall. She's not allowed to have any uh, uh, food other than broth. She's not allowed a pen or paper. 
no 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 drawing no nothing she's just supposed to rest and over this resting she starts going crazy so um, Gilman is is the figure who negotiates motherhood uh, that has been long canonized at the turn of the century and um motherhood in uh, in her land also is is kind of out it's taken out of the picture it's not a burden uh anymore no it, it's, it's not a burden um, it's 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 become something like a religion right yeah um so it's so in a way it's supplemented but you know so everybody reveres mothers everybody reveres and respects children and of course all of that is also part of this logic of perfection because it's children who always represent more perfection If the women do their job and they self-select, right, and they and only the best of them reproduce, uh, then then and, and of course with all the problematic um, associations that it's comes your, it's with eugenics, right? Exactly, and I mean Gilman was also yeah. famous yeah. precisely for advocating eugenics and euthanasia and so forth yeah. to perfect to perfect society. Yeah, white the white race, so to speak. Uh, absolutely so mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um gilman's is the text that comes latest in the kind of selection that we prepared <laughs> for this session yes and i looking back at the other texts i also find it the least revolutionary in this way and i want to i really want to talk about mazora which i you know thumb through um digitally and which works differently so here the the discoverer is a woman mm-hmm And there's a kind of a long frame narrative to this, where she yes. also, the question is, how does she get on the road? Why does she travel? I mean, she's happily married. Uh, she's a, mm -hmm. a Russian-American. She's, she's a Russian. Russian. She's a Russian. Yes. She's a revolutionary. Um, she yeah. has to leave the country um, during the revolution, during the backlash. And then she sort of, um, she <laughs> escapes, I think, Uh, via Siberia, which is why she ends up at the, you know, North Pole. Um, and she spent some time with, with Inuit there. Uh, that's sort of part of that long frame narrative that yeah. you were talking about. But a very interesting yeah. one, right? So it's not like she doesn't go straight to Mizora. But eventually she takes up this challenge uh, that one of the Inuit opposes to her saying, you know, like she, she wants to, she wants to I go think to the US. To row. She wants to row home towards mm -hmm, France exactly. across the North Sea. Right, it's all very um, and fantastic. so, mm -hmm. yeah, and and there's this challenge that one of the Inuit poses to her, where it's like no man has ever, you know, managed to to cross uh, to go across, right? And she's like, well, I can do it, and and so she does, <laughs> and she gets sucked, <laughs> she gets she gets sucked into this maelstrom, and sort of gets sucked under the ice. So this is, I imagine, right, into this, into this. Uh, ma almost magical, um, luminescent world under under the pole, uh, right? It's this yes. sort of hollow earth idea, right? Where she's like mm. she's sucked into this world where, of course, it's not cold or you know um, hostile. But it's, it's like it's, Italy. It's, it's, it's even balmier than Italy. I was really, <laughs> Italy? I was quite taken with the description. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, absolutely, it's raw, paradise. Raw meat with the with the Inuit, uh, and she mm -hmm. uh, learns to survive there, and she also likes the fact that she you know is adapted to cold climbs so it doesn't mm -hmm. doesn't bother her but it's really kind of you know discomforting to say the least and then she's all of a sudden she ends up in this beautiful female only mm -hmm. world where all the women are blonde that's one of mm -hmm. the most important points from the beginning yes. so all the, the people who are there are blonde but then uh, they're not as pretty as the herlanders Right. I mean, they, I guess they're also not as pretty. No, they they're described. So there's ways in which 
that text is sim- like Lane's text is similar in that yes, they're also blonde. And in that way, they're they're different from the narrator who has dark hair. And that's also made much of, right? She, mm-hmm. and that's also the reason why eventually she, she becomes a bit critical of that idea that, you know, of, of that their idea of perfection and perfect beauty. But um, she describes them as having like big torsos and like they're super strong. They like they have, you know, they're, they're, they're tall and they're strong. And it has to do, interestingly, because you just mentioned uh, the raw meat that... Vera, the the narrator, has been eating with the Inuit. All the food that she gets in uh, Mazora is vegetarian, right? Or I mean, Mm -hmm. or it's artificially grown meat, right? It's chemically grown food. Yeah. Um, There are no more animals because that is considered inefficient use of land and inefficient use of of uh, also actually sort of um, inefficient production uh, of of food uh, because animals aren't as clean as the kind of food that can be produced chemically. Um, So the women that she encounters there are very advanced scientifically and technologically, which is also why I find this text much more interesting than um, mm-hmm. than Herland. I mean, there's some mention of like vehicles, motorized vehicles in Herland as well. But I mean, that's like 35 years later. And Mary Bradley Lane also imagines these kind of vehicles and like communication technology, like Zoom and weird stuff. They have everything. Yeah. It's It's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I mean, this is throughout the text, I think uh, science is spelled with a capital S. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even in the frame narrative, um, Vera, the narrator, talks about how she's fascinated with science. So there's really a um, uh, a turn towards science as a as a recipe to make the world better. And these wonderful women chemists who have, uh, you know, so many ways in, in, in survival. They really are also an ecologically mm. better community because they they don't have to go through all the eating the animals and polluting the world uh, from that perspective. That's what I what I just thought when you were speaking. It's also an ecologically mm. um, cleaner world that they leave. Right. Their footprints are absolutely cleanliness is super important in in everything yeah. in food in the surrounding and that's sort of part of the argument or, or part of the. This is how the world works, and and Vera finds out about this. This is how they've become who they are. This is how they become mm-hmm. have become so perfect, right? This is the idea. They they are surrounded by beautiful nature, and they're in clean air and clean water, and they're eating clean food that they have sort of artificially, you know, produced, and it's mm-hmm. so clean that they have become the best that they can be over generations and they've again perfected themselves and of course and then that's where sort of the dark side of it all comes in again because uh lane is as racist if not more so than gilman where uh part of that development towards perfection is and they sort of explicitly say so they have bred out or you know undesirable traits including you know dark hair certainly there's nobody who's not not white and while men have also been lost in the process of perfection, right? They've, yep. in a way, actively yep. eliminated men because they were sort of polluting society. And then, luckily, they were so proficient in science that they also found a way to to keep society going, right? Mm. But um, yeah, can there's you, this can, dark can side. Can we quickly talk? How did they lo- how did they lose the men? <laughs> I mean, lose isn't actually not uh, right. So there's this <laughs> um, there's this moment in the text which I also find very interesting, where they go through the history. History is not talked about much in Mizora. It's sort of forgotten mm. because, it's, you know, it's so ancient history uh, is not something that concerns the women anymore. But um, 
but Vera, of course, is interested, right? So she always keeps asking, where are the men? And so eventually she gets an answer. And in the story, sort of, there were wars and a lot of men died. I mean, there's sort of these, you know, essentially there was a civil war, right? And everybody started killing each other. A lot of the men died. And eventually women were so fed up, but also uh, afraid for their lives and the lives for the children that they take over the government and they uh, create a women's republic that for about 100 years, that's the initial plan, I think, keep men what they want to keep men out of um, government and they um, introduce all these kinds of reform laws that also women suffragists or feminists at the end of the 19th century are sort of fighting for right um, they introduce all of these reforms but one of these reforms that they also introduce is that everybody who is violent or again who um, commits a crime or is exhibits any sort of undesirable traits is taken sort of out of the is taken out of the reproductive system in that sense that they don't get to reproduce mm. so there's there, again there's mm. eugenics um, and it's this very short phrase where it's like so we, they put in these laws uh, where everybody's imprisoned or can't reproduce who commits crimes or is, you know, in some ways not a, a perfect citizen. And then they say, like, after a few decades, the man question had sort of solved itself, right? <laughs> so men take themselves out of the... <laughs> b- mm. they're, they're essentially eliminated. And then once mm-hmm. women um, realize that they uh, can sort of reproduce chemically, they just give up on producing men children. <laughs> It's like, mm-hmm. what is this weird vocabulary I'm using? But like, this is what they, they just have only girls. And yeah. so this yeah. is how Ms. Rora comes about. Yeah. And it's interesting how this narratively is presented, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's matter of fact, you know, that's how it was. That's how it worked. And uh, of course, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, we, all have, we also have all these anxieties around the replaceability mm-hmm. of men if women should get the vote, if women should have more rights. I'm thinking also of uh, Dana, uh, Charles Dana's uh, Gibson girl, a uh, figure in visual, visual culture um, who comes up as, as parallel to the new woman in the 1880s mm-hmm. and 90s with the big hair and the very, very athletic. She rides bikes, which is scandalous. And uh, there's lots of cartoons that show those healthy, sprightly Gibson girls examining small men under um, a magnifying glass mm. so so you have these minuscule men who can't keep up with these fabulous new women and there's a huge argument about women going astray you know the family order being destroyed if they should have more rights or um, you know have the right to keep their own money if they're in a marriage if they make money uh, if they had rights to children and so on and so forth and it's very much an uncanny um, resonance with the contemporary arguments about women's bodies and Absolutely. Roe v. Wade and um, the turn of the conservative SCOTUS. We right. started out with this and it's uncanny how it works because mm-hmm. the, one of the key arguments is that the babies or the embryos' rights have to be protected. And there's a human rights debate going on with, um, that's linked to um, fetal personhood. So if you couldn't, if you conceive of the fetus as a person, then the person has human rights and can't mm-hmm. be aborted, can't be subjected to violence, and so on and so forth. And it's 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 uncanny how women's choice, women's bodies, mm-hmm. women's self determination is just talked over. 
no and these women of course this is also i mean what these texts of course then you know uh, comment on right is the struggle for women's rights and which of mm. course are also then human human rights there's a lot of debate about it's not um no coincidence that you know Uh, marriage is also done away with, right? As as men are being done <laughs> done away with, marriage is yeah. uh, done away with. Suddenly, these women are full citizens of their respective countries, obviously, right? With all the with all the rights and all the responsibilities, and they have access to education, um, and they've had um, access to all jobs. They have to do them also, but they they excel at them, right? And this is um, uh, this is part. So so in both um, the mental abilities are not um questioned and and also the sort of physical um abilities and uh, are not questioned and again it, that's interesting because right the 19th century is steeped in in these ideas of you know separate spheres and women being physically weaker naturally so um and and morally superior maybe but certainly not intellectually uh, and then what these women um what these authors also sort of argue is no that that is of course partly socially produced right women mm -hmm. are kept weak women are kept uneducated and this should change because only then women can sort of develop their full potential mm. and they can and be this full is, people I think, where the utopia is as a genre also comes in as an ideal genre because it, it features going back to morris it features long descriptions of how the state actually works mm -hmm. um so, I mean, if you're going to depict a, an ideal society that works differently, the question is about the institutions, uh, right. not so much about the individual family as, as you know, a uh, nuclear unit in the society, but how do the institutions work? Exactly. Um, what is different? What is organized better? And uh, what I liked specifically about Missouri is the long... You know, sometimes it's a bit dry, but yes. it's, it's very in-your-face... <laughs> A description of how an education system could work. Mm -hmm. They're national colleges. They're paid for by the state. The teachers have the highest regard socially and financially. Only the best teachers get to teach. And they teach everything. So we don't even have to talk about women, you know, being being confined to crocheting and doing doing no. work or stuff like that. I mean, they teach everything. Absolutely. And um, I and love that. Really egalitarian. Really. Yes. And what I also love, they also teach in these in these lecture halls that are there's like streaming, essentially. Right. The best lecturers give lectures and then the public can go. Um, there's public education. Right. P people can go yeah. and get like a sort of, uh, you know, get a streamed image of of the lecture and get the best. Best, best like everybody in Missouri, wherever they are, whatever they do, they can have access to the best education, even sort of lifelong learning, right? In this way, where, yes. <laughs> where, yeah. and that's also you know made possible through technology, which I, you know, when I first read this, this was way pre like pre pandemic, and then pandemic, yeah. and I would sort of um, discuss it again with my students in class, and I was like, wait, there's zooming, and there's you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, it's really absurd, yeah. but. Pretty amazing. Again, with all the the sort of dark sides of it. Again, that it espouses, like it's racist. It's violently racist or white supremacist um, in many ways, but it certainly imagines the world otherwise. Mm. And it does. I mean, it does even out differences in diversity. That's what all utopian fiction in a, in a way does. I mean, everybody has to stick with the system. Everybody has to be a member. Everybody has to participate. There can't be any. Uh, you know, straight from that. So that's the, mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, in, in, in the turn of the century, racism 
is the ideal solution for that to say if we were only had clean food and uh, a clean environment then our people would be so much better and they would be physically healthier uh, in uh, in Missouri what what the women do what uh, Vera is so fascinated with is breathe deeply I'm like <laughs> geez they're all yogis you know yes. <laughs> One woman can have uh, 225 square inches of air into you know, stream into her lungs and they do this as a performance say, I breathe so deeply and then they breathe out again and you know, I laughed loud when I read it but it also it makes so much sense uh, mm -hmm. with contemporary you know, understandings of what a good life might be mm -hmm. but then again it has this uncanny racial utopia white supremacist tinge that doesn't work at all exactly. so, so diversity is not okay and and it's not happening no. everybody that only comes much later remember mm. yeah yeah that only becomes yeah. much later where people begin to imagine a better society that includes diversity and difference mm. uh, much of these story these early stories are about um, getting rid of that difference getting rid of that That is that's the imperfect, and yeah. Uh, yeah. of course, again, yeah, from whatever the, the perfect mm -hmm. is, then yeah. yeah, yeah. But this again, this is all pre pre sort of Third Reich and you know whatever. But you know, th this is a very prominent idea in these early texts, mm. at least mm. in these two earlier texts. Yeah, and I mean, this is a is a good seek also maybe to a short text mm -hmm. that we also read, Lily Deborah Blake's uh, Divided Republic, mm -hmm. uh, an allegory of the future. Uh, published in 1885 i mean the text is the title is already the program the divided republic an allegory of the future it's mm -hmm. a shorter text it uh, hinges on lincoln's quote house divided against mm -hmm. itself cannot stand from the civil war so this is reconstruction at its best and it like 1848 like the first wave of feminism it uses a key moment in american history and you know texts around this moment namely the american civil war mm -hmm. to say a portion of the portion of the population has been overlooked and it's high time that they're given their due and that we you know work towards an egalitarian view what the 1848ers the elizabeth katie stanton did was basically write a declaration of independence where they inserted where they replaced the english tyrant king with man who has become a tyrant to woman in the family of man and they directly take it from there now what devil blake does uh in a divided republic is basically sketch a revolution mm -hmm. where the women just leave right because mm -hmm. you know they haven't been given the right to vote so they just start walking. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's not. So here it's not uh, a foreign land, or you know, um, in much in later texts we get foreign planets or whatever, right? Um, or a future. It's not that. It's it's just the West, right? Women mm -hmm. from the, the women of the East, as you say, they're fed up with not being given the vote, not having sort of equal share of sort of um, uh, prof, like of sort of having um, a share in. Uh, wage earnings and whatever and so they decide to go west and they go to the territories and they establish a women's republic and again much like in these other texts or again much like in Gilman's text we have these types right and even more so maybe right it's a, it's yeah. a parable it's an allegory we have you know the matron uh, we have the young lover who 
with a heavy heart departs from her sweetheart but you know it must be done in order to mm. uh, produce change right and so 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 these women they go west and they establish a women's republic and again they're doing pretty well they're <laughs> something I, I I always laugh at when I come across it they, they wear loose clothes and and mm-hmm. um, you know they they do arts and and crafts and and but then also architecture and science and again they they lecture and they learn and they educate each other and they build grandiose um, buildings and and everything is wonderful and beautiful which men eventually get to see because <laughs> as the women are leaving men become initially are super happy they're like it you know if they if they don't want to live yeah. <laughs> under our rule essentially right like they they should leave fine whatever and uh, but then of course uh, the east descends into chaos complete chaos right uh, men are drunk and dirty and they they kill each other or whatever you know um and so everything sort of goes to waste and they become really desperate and eventually come see the women begging for them to, to come back. And what they see then, yeah. of course, again, is this contrast. It's this beautiful, perfect society that the women have built in the absence of men. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and begging them to And return. I think the turning point comes when they deserted lover petitions to Congress for the women to return because he can't live without his mm-hmm. is it Cecilia he can't live without his Cecilia I think it's so, Rose it's Rose there's also Cecilia oh, it's Rose. Cecilia okay. well, is it's the one Rose, who yeah. uh, again with a heavy heart she, she leaves her um, whole old father behind so she's she's the ter- caretaker right and it's, it's very much emphasized in the beginning also that you know these women they don't go out of spite or because they're man haters right they go because they have no choice this is the mm-hmm. only way they've tried everything, right? Yeah, like the indep- <laughs> Declaration of Independence argument. Mm-hmm. We've tried everything. Yeah. Now, these now we have to go now, to extreme means. Yeah. And this is just like we're, yeah. we're going to leave and let you figure things out on your like figure. Let you figure out that you actually need us, and that mm. you need us in more ways than you maybe sometimes imagine. And yeah, and eventually men <laughs> come around and give the women voting rights and equal pay. And everything they desire um, in return mm. for return, <laughs> in return yeah. for the women coming back to the East. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And society is, quote, reconstructed. Yeah. No, so absolutely. It's uh, rebuilt in a better way. It's also a rendition of that American Jeremiah ideal mm-hmm. where, you know, we had good beginnings, but then things all went to pieces and now we have to rebuild. Absolutely. And, uh, it's the women who are really the, the, the laborers, the caregivers, mm-hmm. and the ones who keep everything together. Uh, which, you know, because the men basically lose it when when they're when they have nobody to look after them and of course again what comes in there is are you know so it's radical in certain ways and it's super conservative in others because again there's this idea that of course women are morally superior um of course men will they will again they will drink they will kill each other when women aren't present as this sort of balancing or you know moralizing presence but yeah, and then, but then, and then there's also this idea that yes, there is this utopian women's republic in mm. in the West, but the real utopia then happens when they unite, uh, when they unite again, and then everybody's really free. I think that's sort of uh, yeah. uh, I'm paraphrasing, but like um, not much. Yeah. This is essentially how the story ends. Everybody's only really yeah. truly free when they come together and when everybody has equal rights. Yeah, yeah. 
And I mean, again, it's an affirmation of the binary model. So, mm-hmm. so one of the questions that I had for you is, is how is there a queer potential in these texts um, for yeah. for just doing away with a binary model with um, mm. with this with the power structures that come with this? Yeah, it depends, I guess, on how you define queer. If you define mm. it narrowly in terms of like you know non-straight, non-heterosexual desires or so forth, no, not much. This is not something that these uh, feminist writers at the time write about, think about. Um, women are not, you know, when women are left alone, they are left alone to other pursuits than sex. Desire is not on their mind. They're they're not Mm. sexual beings in that way. Queer in the sense of not, again, not entirely heteronormative or in terms of like um, challenging conceived notions of what a woman is supposed to be like. Yes. So in terms of Mm. sort of gen, in terms of gender roles and gender, yes. Uh, but again, what what as you've said, what remains very clear is that is is that sex binary, uh, that sort of biologist like this biological biologistic idea of a sex binary. What is challenged only is, in a way, what women do with themselves, with their mm. bodies, with their minds. Mm. But not there, there's no questioning in in those texts at least of. Of heterosexuality, heterosexuality as a structuring principle of society, or of this binary sex gender system, really. Mm. No. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great explanation. I also think, again, these these women are shown in relation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's difference, but the difference is in the relationality to the counterpart maybe to on the one hand the, the masculine or masculinity but also to other femininities and mm-hmm. um right but there seems oh, to be no imaginary where we can think of humankind as female single sex only yeah you know? i mean in certain ways again this comes later and later you know post-war versions yeah. of this narrative where where lesbian desire or queer desires come in and where sex where actually mm. sex comes in and so necessarily yeah. it's it's homo uh, sexual or queer yeah. but yeah, yeah in those early texts that's not not the case but in terms of relationality i mean i like what you said earlier there are different relationalities that are being imagined you know it goes beyond the nuclear family society communities are being imagined differently and that's also one of the reasons why i'm interested in those in those texts right because they they're there's a political imaginary and there's a social imaginary that is interesting and, and not necessarily super new or, um, you know, mm. not, it's not necessarily something that you have, haven't heard before, but still, right, it's quite striking in its yeah. time in, and in I certain mean, ways. At the end, it's always also about, in these texts, national survival. I mean, um, mm-hmm. empire is written large in this context. We talked about mm-hmm. white supremacy, you know, racist tendencies to perfect what Americans, American society might look like. Um, this is also under the impression of, of immigration and immigration regulation mm-hmm. laws. So again, these are very white texts mm-hmm. um, that... The political imaginaries are transgressive when it comes to white feminism, but they're Mm -hmm. absolutely um, exclusionary um, or exclusive when it comes to the U.S. as a as a as a project, as a utopian project Mm -hmm. in and of itself. Absolutely violent, even yeah, 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, speaking yeah. of violence, I don't know whether uh, you maybe whether you also want to talk about that other text by Jack London because it represents this this other kind of or it, it represents the flip side in a way because it imagines an all male society. Yeah. So you know, generally speaking we get many more all-female societies. Um, all-male ones are very, very few. There are some androgynous mm-hmm. ones, but there are only very few all-male ones. And Jack London's Maybe because ma- all-male societies in that logic don't serve so well for a utopian uh, no, not at all. Uh, place. It can't be no. beautiful. No, <laughs> It also well, can't be in no place. No. I don't know. In that lo- like, exactly. In that logic, it doesn't work at all. And I mean, in London, yeah. it also doesn't work. So right, it's not mm. this text is not a utopia. It's sort of it's a parody of uh, utopia. Initially, the narrator, mm-hmm. who is I mean the title is uh, the strange experience of a misogynist, and so that the narrator is a misogynist, right? He doesn't like women much, um, and suddenly uh, one day all all I mean I want to say women, but it's not actually that. It's all females of the earth disappear, which makes that story also super interesting because it's not only women, um, it's also all female animals, um, including mm. bees, and that's explicitly mentioned, which of course causes all kinds of problems, uh, food scarcity, I mean, you know, um, in, the end of the world essentially is, is, is initiated by the disappearance of all female beings. So yeah, it doesn't go well, the, the all, um, yeah. all male society. Yeah doesn't go well. And what we can maybe quickly say about London's text, published in 1897, so it's also around that time. Of course, it's 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 a parody, but it also is a, um, a parody on uh, um, communist thought, mm-hmm. right? Because it's very, it's an economically tract that uses Marxist language quite a bit and says that now that the women are gone, nobody's working for anything anymore. The superstructure of the government is, is crumbles really fast and anarchy ensues. Mm-hmm. And what I found so um, intriguing is the ending because, I mean, we have this misogynist who's running around first. He's really happy that the women are gone and but all of a sudden he realizes that the, all the men are drinking and uh, there's nothing left and he comes to a near-death experience where mm-hmm. he starts seeing a female vision and it turns out, and that was such a surprise, it turns out this vision is a woman he knew before that he didn't even know he was in love with. Mm-hmm. And that struck me as like, okay, where does she come from? So there was no talk about the life before, but then all of a sudden there's Laura. And when I started thinking about this Laura, he wakes up and says he's going to propose to her right away because this is a feverish dream that he's had. So this Laura also represents all the beauty, all the companionship. It's a, She's taken straight out from, from Petraka and from Love Sonnets. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, Petraka dedicates all his sonnets to, to Donna Laura and uh, the English sonnet tradition, the love sonnet tradition, takes up this logic of Laura. So it's not a coincidence that she's called Laura because the turn is towards towards love and, mm-hmm. you know, being loved, indulging in art, turning towards the beautiful. And that's the antidote to this economic speak mm-hmm. that we have throughout. And yeah. he happens to be a writer, but he's not writing anymore because his stanzas don't self-reproduce, mm-hmm. is what he says. His right. other friend, the actor, has totally gone off the rails. So even art is stalled when women are gone. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think London is poking fun at a lot of things. I mean, he was, he was a socialist, yeah. so I mean, I, I guess he's poking fun definitely, or he's, you know, showing that sort of the complete absence of women or like complete absent, absence of, of, of um, government, you know, produces problems, obviously. Um, 
but I don't I, the ending, I think, is this like cop out. Um, it's also this tradition of, oh, I woke up and I, it was all a dream, and now I've mm-hmm. gone through this experience or like this, you know, imaginary experiences uh, of of living in a world without women, and suddenly uh, the bachelor or the, the 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 misogynist realizes that really he does need a woman in his life, and and yeah, so he she, he runs off to Laura. I find that story very interesting in how it manipulates genres and how it mm. parodies them, but also uses them partly seriously and partly satirically. And so it, it starts as this utopian, or at least in the eyes of the narrator, it's this perfect world now because all the sort of gibbering women are gone. But then again, it descends into this dystopian nightmare. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's more of a dystopian. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic. Exactly. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So so we've discussed a roster of of texts that all you know deal with the role of women and maybe the necessity of women to be <laughs> in the world and uh, the question of equal equal rights and uh, representation self-representation, artistic production. And we opened with that, you know, timeliness of this moment mm-hmm. where um, women's reproductive rights are, are at stake here. And I should say that since we both live in Germany, abortion is illegal in Germany. Only it doesn't get prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So we have an interest to look at what happens in the United States when the, that federal law might be taken away. Mm-hmm. And I want to add it's that... It's not a very happy note to end no, on. No, so you have a, something no, cheerful what, to say. I don't know whether it's, uh, whether it's cheerful, but I mean, one of the things that I find striking and one of the reasons I'm working on this project um, is because, you know, I said earlier that there's this early upsurge, right, at the end of uh, the 19th and early 20th century with first wave feminism. There was the second upsurge with a sort of second, third wave feminism in feminist utopias of this kind. And then when I sort of became interested, there was very little around in terms of representations of single-sex societies. You know, I looked, you know, is there any recent stuff? And there was very little. Uh, but in the past three, four years, there has been a lot. I'm just looking, you know, here, uh, because I just ordered a new bunch of texts. And there are these from, from like mm-hmm. 2020, 2021. It's like mm-hmm. Manhunt, Afterland, The End of Men, right? There are all these... I mean, I want to say also post-viral, because that's often a narrative that gets picked up in these mm. later texts, right? Um, all the mm. men die from a virus. There are lots of these texts that that are now available, or like that, that are being published right now, that have the same premise. And unfortunately, I've not gotten around to reading them all, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it will be really interesting to look, you know, again, going back to some of those questions you've asked, how they deal with that problem with the gender binary, how they deal with that problem of sort of a supposed binary sex gender system, whether they address it, how would they deal with that, amongst many other things. I mean, um, um, yeah. aside from all these other topics that we've also addressed, how they, they deal with science and reproduction and politics and community and so forth. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah. I, have this huge I mean, pile. these are the big questions. Mm-hmm. These are the big questions for our age, plus the exactly. ecological crisis, climate change crisis that mm-hmm. we're looking at. So it's a, there has to be a planetary, a, a planetary approach to species mm-hmm. survival, or maybe 
it's just time to be over. <laughs> and uh, I did. Okay, no, women, if if the apocalypse comes and all the only the female beings in the world survive, then uh, we have literature to turn to and see how we can he can organize. Right. So. I mean, I guess I want to come back to you know with all the problems that some of these texts have um, inbuilt. I, I mean, they are part of this tradition of literature of imagining things otherwise and yeah it's not only you know people often talk about this rise in dystopian literature in the past years but there's also a little bit of a return to utopian ideas and whether it's dystopian or dystopian or a mix of them we need i think (laughs) we need these texts that imagine things otherwise and then we can still sort of disagree with them partly or wholly or you know but we can think about also how we want this world to be and how we want it to continue with men and women and all people of all genders. And um, so this is also the work that these texts are doing or that we do when we engage with these texts. Yes. Thank you. I think that's a great closing statement. Thank you for for coming on to this podcast uh, in very busy and, and mind-boggling times. And thank you for bringing a host of super intriguing literary texts. I, I certainly look forward to, to discussing this more with you and to reading a book. <laughs> Or more publications of this. So. I hope it's going to be a book one day. So <laughs> I'll keep you posted. We'll look out for it. We'll look out for it. Thank you very much for having Thank you. me. <laughs> Thanks. just so you know once again the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host not the american centrum which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy thanks again for listening